History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, the Irish woman who fought for equality in 19th century San Francisco. So being angry, being furious, she started to agitate for change. She was basically saying, no, I'm not putting up with this. I'm equal to any man and I can do the same job. I should be paid the same as a male. We'll hear about the life of Kate Kennedy, the first woman in the world to take legal action for equal pay and win. I'm delighted that she's finally getting to be recognised in this country for what she did because she was a a fighter for women's rights and for the ordinary person in the street, that's who she was fighting for. Also, a rocket engineer's perspective on the moon landing. We'll hear from Jesse Kitchens, who played a vital role in the Apollo 11 mission. And to begin this evening, just ahead of Oscar night, a look back at the golden age of Irish cinema going. For many of us, a trip to the cinema has been replaced by a night on the sofa in front of a 4K widescreen smart TV. We live in the age of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus and a plethora of other streaming companies. Increasingly, film studios following the old maxim, if you can't beat them, join them, release movies directly to audiences, often bypassing cinemas altogether. But in the not-so-distant past, a visit to the cinema was at the centre of social life for many people, especially in urban areas. In Dublin, particularly from the 1930s onwards, new cinemas were built to cater for the huge crowds who craved the latest that Hollywood had to offer. I'm joined by Dr Ruth McManus of Dublin City University, who has researched the history of a number of Dublin cinemas, particularly on the city's north side. Ruth, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you very much. Um, Tell us a little bit about the the very, very early days of cinema going in Ireland. I mean, cinema, I suppose, started in the 1890s. At what point did it start to arrive in Ireland? Well, very quickly, within a few months of the earliest moving pictures, we have that fad coming to Ireland in about 1896. But they were usually travelling as, you know, seen in fairs and that kind of thing. So it wasn't for about a decade or so that we have settled picture houses, um, usually converted buildings Probably the best known is the Volta. Everybody mm. thinks it's the first cinema. Oh, was but, it not the first? Um, James Joyce, well, it wasn't the first one. No, no Dennis Condon uh, will tell you that there are other candidates for, for the very first. Um, the Queen and, and Brunswick Street, uh, Pier Street today was probably a bit earlier. Um, this, we just like to think of we James like to Joyce think of James Joyce, the, the Volta, yeah. and of course the Volta showed mostly Italian uh, films, which had, and of course these are silent movies, so um, you have the the intertitles which ha- explain the plot. And these are all written in Italian. So for Dublin audiences, it was a bit of a stretch. So they don't bother changing um, them to English? No, no. So they used to print up a little synopsis. <laughs> Just in case you got lost the plot. What was going on. So then in the, in the late 20s, obviously, cinema changes forever with the emergence of the talkies, with the with first off the jazz singer. And uh, did that spark a golden age for cinemas in Ireland? I mean, there must have been a huge shift in technology for a start from silent to talkies as far as the cinemas were concerned. Yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, the Savoy opened in 1929 and that was one of these beautiful, it was the mm. a- an atmospheric cinema, so beautifully luxurious, five different 
different prices depending on where you, where you were sitting in this vast auditorium. So it was one huge auditorium with a proscenium arch that looked like um, something in Venice. Mm. Um, and about I think it held almost 3,000 people. Wow. But that actually had to be retrofitted for sound. It came a little bit too early and it had been a little hiatus. So the Drumcondra Grand uh, was the first theatre that was actually built for sound in 1934. And I suppose it was timing was right because you had the emergence of this new medium, the talking picture, at the same time that you had these new suburbs and lots and lots of people only delighted to have some form of entertainment to take them out of themselves. Is it my imagination or were a lot of these huge cinemas, the the, the, the grands were you know, they were Cabra Grand Drum Grand, north side of Dublin rather than necessarily south side, or uh, is it just that some of the south side cinemas have actually survived? I think it's partly that um, where the population growth was happening. So, for example, Merino had just been completed a vast new housing estate. And then you have the Fairview Grand opening, uh, which is catering for that market. Uh, But you did have some very big cinemas on the south side as well. Some of them a little bit later, for example, Ballyfermot had the gala, but that doesn't open until the 50s because that's when Ballyfermot is developing. And that had, I think, one of the biggest screens in the entire country. At least they boasted that it was. And to what extent was going to the cinema a very different experience then to today? Obviously, you were sitting with potentially anyway, a far, far bigger audience. For sure. And again, there was sort of a difference between the functional cinemas in the suburbs and then these more palatial city centre first run theatres that would have not only did they have the cinema screen, but they had a restaurant. They might have had a ballroom like the Metropole. So there was a full experience on offer, sort of a magical experience for people. When you went to the cinema, it was not just an occasional experience. I think I was reading data for recently. An average Irish person goes 3.3 times a year to the cinema. I'm not quite sure how that's possible in the present day. Mm. But people were going weekly or two or three times a week. And the programmes would change very frequently. So you might have a picture that would be on Monday and Tuesday. Then there'd be a new programme on on Wednesday and Thursday. So you could have three or four changes in the week. And people go to all of those different showings. They didn't have as many alternatives, I suppose. And what then in terms of exhibition and the rest of the, the country, presumably only a certain number of prints would actually come into the country and uh, they would gradually find their way around regional cinemas as they, they began to open up. Exactly. And that did become a bit of an issue, I suppose, later on, especially as the cinema sort of is battling against other forms of entertainment in the 60s with TV because you had the first run theatres in the city centre and they got the first go of the print. But then by the time it, it got distributed down the line to the, the second run cinemas in the suburbs and then by the time it reached the end, far end of the country it was very often quite badly damaged and scratched and you could also have situations where various projectionists took exception to something they saw on the picture and they actually made their own little censorship cuts to the print so you mightn't get the full picture by the time it ended up down the uh, And uh, they were quite boisterous affairs, the screening of films in in certain parts of of Dublin and in certain cinemas. Yes, and and certain cinemas would have had a reputation for having a tough crowd, um, especially where you had lots of kids coming in for the Saturday matinees. And they were more, well, as interested with what was going on around them as what was going up on the screen. And that's why the ushers had a very important role to play 
kind of keeping the, the crowd contained. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And you know, sometimes the kids would bait the ushers. I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a cinema on the Quays in Dublin which was nicknamed The Ranch because they tended to just, just, yes. just so western. The so western. I'm assuming yeah. that the West, the screening of westerns was even more boisterous because there would have been attempts to imitate some of the behaviour that was going on screen. <laughs> yeah, 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 they were hugely popular. So the westerns and 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 the follier uppers as well. The, the series. Yeah, explain that. I mean, this is I've heard this phrase over and over yeah. again. What was a follier upper? So when you went to the pictures, you didn't just have one movie. You'd have a whole range of things. So you'd go in and you'd see the B picture, you know, at, which was often, you know, as the title suggests, not quite top quality, but it, it filled the time in. You'd have maybe um, the, the movie news called reels, The Newsreels. Yeah, news, that, kind, yeah, of thing? that yeah. kind of thing. And then you'd have the big showing of the main picture. But in there as well, and again, encouraging audiences to come back week after week, you had serials like... Ming the Merciless, you know, Flash Gordon in the 30s and then there was various uh, Westerns, I think Roy Rogers and that kind of thing that would come back every week. There'd be a, you'd be left on a cliffhanger so that would so encourage that's the you to come back. So that's a follow-up. Gotcha. Yes, right, follow okay, well, yeah. And the, I mean, the cinema was a huge outlet. It, it wasn't just a masculine activity. It was a huge outlet for, for women and for children, obviously, as well. Yeah, so often women weren't really considered respectable if they were going to public houses. And a lot of people didn't drink as well. A lot of people didn't take alcohol and there weren't many other alternatives. So going to the pictures was a, was a, a good option. For a lot of people as well, I suppose I'm interested in from the perspective of these new suburbs where you had large families in small houses, ultimately, um, or people coming from the tenements. And the idea of sitting down in a nice, warm uh, cinema and having the crack uh, was really quite attractive and you could get, because of the variable pricing, you could get quite cheap seats at the front, the wooderners, <laughs> as the name <laughs> suggests, not very comfortable, or the cushioners at the back. And some of the cinemas had a balcony as well, so they would be the, the most exclusive and expensive seats. Um, now, some of them also had other activities uh, going on. Tell me about somebody called Billy Panama. Yes, I, I hadn't heard about Billy Panama until I was uh, speaking at, at Drumcondra Library and a lady came up to me and she says, this chap used to come at the interval between the different showings and uh, demonstrate his skills on the yo-yo. <laughs> so I, I, I did a bit of digging and I discovered that Billy Panama was dubbed uh, America's yo-yo champion. Certainly claimed to be. In, in 1932 and he came to Ireland and that was the first phase of this craze of the yo-yo. So it was about a year where everybody was going crazy for the yo-yo and there's reports in the paper, the bank manager, everybody <laughs> had the yo And he, he um, set did up... Did it displace the hula hoop or did the hula hoop displace the yo-yo? <laughs> well, yo-yo-er? that's a good Whatever. question. That's um, for so social historian. Yeah, it was the big thing and he actually was doing demonstrations in Cleary's at that stage Apparently, a lot of adults used to come along and see all of the excitement. And he, he was asked to do a piece, a regular piece in the papers explaining how he did the various tricks and taking you through. And then there was a competition that was sponsored by one of the newspapers and they got local kids to come. So in the cinemas, they'd come along and they would try and do the tricks or whatever. And there was a big final in the Theatre Royal. <laughs> but this happened in 1932 and he was a teenager. And then I discovered he came back in about 1956 to restart the craze. And so the newspapers were saying, oh, that craze that your parents Mm. were 
into is coming back now. And he sold his own branded yo-yos. So you get a Billy Panama yo-yo. And it worked like a time round for him. Yeah, and it was a big, big deal. And uh, again, the Evening Herald had the, had the competition. And by 62, I think they were now encouraging girls as well as boys to, to show off their prowess on the yo-yo. Now, of course, um, you know, they say love stories began at Chivago, uh, Chivago's <laughs> nightclub. I would imagine quite a few love stories began in cinemas as well. Well, again, it was a very nice place to bring uh, your other half, uh, particularly uh, sitting in the dark uh, in the back row. And I think a lot of lads like to bring their their girl to a, a horror movie where there might be an opportunity that she'd be so frightened <laughs> that she'd grab a hold of him. <laughs> So presumably an invitation to go to the cinema, that it was understood what was, in, what was implied by an invitation to go to the cinema. I imagine so. And I suppose that's why some forces in Irish society would have considered the immorality of, of the cinema, not just in terms of what was being shown on screen, but what was happening among the audience as well. You mentioned an impromptu form of censorship where protect projectionists would uh, take exception to something that they saw and would simply get the scissors and <laughs> cut it out. But uh, there was more formalised form of, 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 of censorship. And I think we were, uh, we were ahead of the world, really, uh, in, in, in that, in, uh, in, in censoring films. Yeah, in fact, we start censoring films before we censor books. So 1923, I think, and the first censor took his job very seriously and applied his rules very liberally because he didn't just take exception to the things you might expect, like, um, you know, certain immoral behaviour and dancing the rumba and things like that. Uh, But he also didn't like stage Irishness. Now, there was nothing in the act about that, but Kevin Rocket has written about this and he's explained how he, he took grave exception to people depicting Irish people. Glad he wasn't around when the quiet man came <laughs> For sure. Yeah, so there's uh, quite a number of, of films in the 20s that he, he banned, particularly uh, ones with, um, they would have been Irish emigrants or they would have been stories about the Irish in New York and he didn't like them one little bit. Gone with the Wind was, was a particular victim, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the distributors threatened to withdraw completely uh, because he wanted so many cuts and I think the US ambassador or so, some high-ranking official anyway came over and negotiated with them. Uh, and eventually it, there was enough left that they could show it, but I'm not quite sure exactly. He didn't like scenes of childbirth in it, for example. And of course, there was a lot of immoral goings-on that didn't really cut the mustard with them. But even individual words, I mean, word like divorce, for example. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the word divorce. So any reference to the word divorce were cut out of the middle of a sentence, presumably. <laughs> yeah. And it was even more complicated in the pre-talkies era, you know, when it was still silent movies, because sometimes the cuts were so liberal that you had no sense of what the story was supposed to be because the the mistress would end up being cut out or she'd be, you'd be left thinking that she was the wife or something and none of the plot made any sense Mm. anymore. This is not something that ended in the 30s or 40s. I mean, I, I, I remember, for example, when I was growing up, Kieran Carty uh, of the Sunday Independent conducting a long-running campaign against censorship and, uh, you know, showing how utterly bogarized certain films was. So it was still going strong in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah, I remember The Life of Brian being banned. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, funny enough, you're talking about I was watching it last night. <laughs> <laughs> 
on, on a streaming service. Um, anyway, the golden age of cinema going in Ireland, I suppose that kind of cinema going that we're talking about. I mean, we are still, the Irish are still very loyal to, mm-hmm. the, to the cinema, but that golden age really ended in the 60s, didn't it? Yeah. If you were to go back, uh, Jim Keenan has a beautiful book of uh, Dublin cinemas and he has a map showing 56 cinemas in Dublin and city and suburbs in 1956. Like it, it's very hard to imagine mm. nowadays when we're so used to these multiplexes, sort of suburban multi- multiplexes, which are very, very different. So things started to change with the advent of TV and other alternative entertainments. And uh, some of the cinemas twinned, so they made two screens out of one. Others tried new things so that the cinema people were very aware of the competition. So we had new production like um, Cinemascope and Cinerama. So the um, the state, that huge cinema in Fibsborough, right beside the bridge in Fibsborough, that was Cinemascope to try and lure audience mm. in or 3D um and all of these things helped for a while. There were also some really big productions in the 60s, you know, these big epic movies uh, go on for three hours, mm. Lawrence of Arabia or even Dr. Zhivago a little bit later on. And they were still attracting quite big audiences. But things were shifting and it was hard for the suburban cinemas to keep going, particularly, as we were saying, with that whole business of they wouldn't get the print for a long time. Um, so it was harder because... The movies were sort of a little bit outdated by the time they arrived. Um, yeah, so things start to change. And I suppose in the 60s, you see, um, like my own uh, Drumcondra Grand, of which I'm so fond, uh, turning into a supermarket. And that was fake for quite a few of them. Others become bingo halls. And then, of course, we have various uh, furniture showrooms. And some of them struggle on for a bit longer. The Fairview continues for quite a while and eventually then became used for Buena Vista as a viewing cinema, mm. the private cinema. You had others like the classic that had a niche, the classic in Harold's Cross. Harold's Cross, yeah. Uh, when I was a student, we'd all go out there uh, for the late night Rocky Horror Picture On Show. On a Friday night, I remember yeah. it well. So um, some of them survived and then some of them lasted long enough to sort of get a, a new wave of life. Like, like the like Stella, Stella in Rathmines, for yeah, example, which exactly. was, I mean, that that lay vacant for years and years and years and now it was an absolutely magnificent cinema Mm. all over again. Yeah, and a reminder of how wonderful it can be to go to the pictures, I guess. Ruth McManus, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening to talk about the golden age of Irish cinema going. After the break, we look at the life of a pioneering feminist, Kate Kennedy from County Meath, who was the first woman in the world to take legal action over equal pay and to win. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. On Wednesday, there was a special event in Dulic in County Meath honouring a woman who was born there in 1827. This woman is very well known in her adopted home of San Francisco, California, but perhaps not so well known here in Ireland. Really great to be here on International Women's Day. Uh, We have come very far, but there is still a long, long way to go. Uh, My mother was a teacher, uh, so I'm going to give Kate Kennedy a special uh, shout out uh, for saying that she should be paid equally to the male teachers in her school. So that began with Kate Kennedy. So 
I thank her family uh, for her contributions there. Claire Cronin, U.S. Ambassador to Ireland, speaking at the event to honour Kate Kennedy. Kennedy was a pioneering feminist who emigrated to San Francisco, where she became a teacher. Her signature achievement was securing equal pay for equal work, following persistent agitation in California. Outside Dulique Girls National School, there's now a bust of Kate by sculptor Betty Newman McGuire. Her first achievement, winning her court action for equal pay for women in the 1800s. Her second great achievement, securing employment for female teachers who could not be demoted for political activism, becoming the first female to run for public office in the state of California. This image that I created is of a young girl looking to the future with an array of stars soaring above her. I'm joined in studio this evening by two guests. Pat Kennedy is a relative of Kate Kennedy, and also with me is journalist Ken Murray, who for several years now has been leading this project to celebrate the remarkable achievements of one of our most famous but forgotten emigrants. Ken, uh, tell us first of all, how did you find out about Kate Kennedy? Well, Miles, I was walking down Dawson Street one day back in 1993, and I was passing by Hodges and Figgis Bookstore, and a book in the window caught my attention and I went in and looked at it and decided, no, this is not for me. So I was browsing a section of books on Irish interest and I came across this book called The Guinness Book of Irish Facts and Feats by Kieran Dean. And basically the book is about the Irish who went out beyond these shores and achieved, going back as far as you wish. And... I said, I like this type of book, bought the book, went home. I'm working my way through the book. I come to page 57 and there's a reference to a woman called Kate Kennedy from Gaskinstown, County Meath. Now, I live in the countryside and I grew up on a farm and Gaskinstown backs onto our land. And I'm going, I don't know, it couldn't be Kate Kennedy from across the field because surely, surely somebody locally would know about this. Mm. And you that knows County Meath, I thought instantly there must be a Gaskinstown over around Kilmainham Wood or maybe near Kinnegad or even Ballinabracky, which is on the Offaly border. And I gave it no further thought. About 15 years later, I took the book down from the shelf again and I'm working my way through it. And I come to page 57, Kate Kennedy, Gaskinstown, County Meath. And I thought the Internet is up and running Ordnance survey maps and townlands are there. And I checked out all the townlands of Meath. And it turns out there's only one, one Gaskinstown in all of Meath. And it just happens to be the one next to our land. For what it's worth, by the way, Gaskinstown has another claim to fame. This is, by the way, a country road that mm. links one road to another. It's full of farms and there's only about 30 houses on the, on the road. Gaskinstown has another claim to fame. Back in 1945, an actress called Anne Blythe was nominated for an Oscar for a movie called Mildred Pierce. It starred Joan Crawford. And she was nominated for an Oscar. She didn't win, but she's in the history books as a nominee. Her mum, Nan Lynch, was also from Gaskinstown, <laughs> which is quite bizarre when you think it's only a country lane. But anyway, to cut a long story short... I mentioned to a local councillor called Stephen McKee, who happens to live at the bottom of Gaskinstown, I says, are you aware of this woman called Kate Kennedy? And he said no. So I told him the story. I said, I think we should do something about this. But 
it wouldn't be appropriate to do something about Kate Kennedy unless we had approval from the family. Now, we didn't know whether any of her generation and the successive generation of Kennedys were still in the country. They could have been in Australia, Japan, wherever. So about five years passed and one evening my brother was out mowing his lawn and he happens to live at the bottom of Gaskinstown Road and this car pulls up at the gate and this man says, excuse me, I'm looking for Gaskinstown. And my brother says, well, you take a right there and you go up the road. But I wouldn't start from here. Exactly. Uh, Is there anyone in particular you're looking for? And he says, no, but uh, a distant relative of mine called Kate Kennedy used to live on this road. And he says, well, that's an amazing coincidence. My brother was only talking about her two weeks ago. So he gave me the number. I made contact with Pat Kennedy and we set up a committee with the view of honouring Kate Kennedy, the woman who agitated for equal pay for equal work. And hence we got up and running and hence the event in Dulik. And you obligingly brought said Pat Kennedy into studio here with you. Uh, Pat, Kate Kennedy was someone you knew about from a fairly early age. You used to hear stories about her. Tell us a bit about her background. Of course. um, Kate came to live in the homeland Randallstown after... um, her father built a house next door. Uh, that was in the late 1830s. Unfortunately, our father died very young, a couple of months after building the house. And Kate and our family ended up going to America shortly thereafter, a few years. But growing up, I heard about her because her niece wrote a book called The Kennedy Clan. And my father had a copy of it and we read about her in it. That's how I knew her all my, my young life. And was it the famine that finally drove it, the it family would have out been. or was it the death of the father? Well, the death of the father, he left seven children behind, all age 14 and under. So they were trying to run a farm during famine times, so it wasn't the best. So they figured New York was the place to go, so they left. Well, of course, she didn't stop in New York. She ended up in San Francisco. Can tell us about her teaching and equal pay campaign in San Francisco. She is, by the way, I have to say, because I have connections with that part of the world myself, she's very well known in San Francisco, far better than she is in Ireland. Well, this is the point we were making, that she's a bit of a celeb in trade union and teacher circles in the USA. I mean, you know, uh, maybe later on we'll mention the various books she gets a mention in. But Kate Kennedy was born in 1827 and two years later a Catholic emancipation came in and it seems she was very inspired by Daniel O'Connell who, as you know, challenged the British to abolish the penal laws and she must have been influenced by the famine because the story goes that the Catholic Church at the time said that the famine was the will of God and she wasn't having any of this and she renounced her religion and it seems a fire was born into her and a determination not to take no for an answer. So she went to New York and on to San Francisco where her sisters had already been there. There had been a movement of people from New York to San Francisco because there was talk of the gold rush Mm. and it seems a lot of people who wanted to make quick money went there. For a lot of people, it didn't work out. So anyway, Kate Kennedy ends up in San Francisco, I think it was 1856, and she had a basic education in Ireland. She got educated in Dulic National School, and then she went to the Loretto College in Navan. But she seemed able to read, write, 
add, subtract and multiply. She was switched on, tuned in. She knew what she was about. She got to San Francisco and she ended up getting a job in 1867 as the principal of the North Cosmopolitan School. However, that appointment didn't work out. It seems she was a bit of a rebel in the school and the Board of Education basically in San Francisco proposed to pay her less than a man would have earned. So being angry, being furious, she started to, if you like, agitate for change. She was basically saying, no, I'm not putting up with this. I'm equal to any man and I can do the same job. So therefore, I should be paid the same as a male. And she took it to court. Well, she went to the Californian state legislature. She lobbied them over and over and over. And they basically said, we better do something about this because if we don't, we are going to look bad. And the state legislature in 1874 changed the law, but the law wasn't implemented. There was a sort of a a blind eye and a deaf ear turned to equal pay for female teachers. So she kept up the fight. When she went to court, they ruled in her favour and effectively... She is seen as the person who brought about equal pay for equal work. But the story doesn't stop there because she then took up another teaching position in San Francisco and once again was stirring the pot, rocking the boat. She was viewed as trouble and she was basically dismissed. And when she then took a follow-up action to deal with her dismissal, the court ruled in 1890 that it would be then against the law to dismiss a teacher just purely on the grounds of political agitation. So they came up with this finding in the court ruling that you would have to have engaged in either misconduct or you had to have broken the law. But by being a pain in the neck wasn't enough to have you dismissed. (laughs) So in doing so, then she became the person associated with equal pay for equal work. And then she changed the law in so much as schools in California couldn't just dismiss somebody who was banging on the door seeking change. And she also ran for statewide office in California, one of the first women, if not the first woman, to do so. That's right. She was nominated by the Labour Party in California to run for public office in 1886. And she ran for what's known as the state superintendent of instruction position. Apparently in America, a lot of these local boards, you have to be elected. It's the same nearly as being the chief of police. You have to be elected. It's not a political appointee. So she ran for office, even though she didn't have a vote. She didn't win, but she stopped the incumbent from, if you like, winning the position again. But in doing so, she became the first female to run for public office in the state of California and then became an inspiration for other women to do the same. And she was one of a number of Irish immigrants, uh, some of them, uh, a number of them women as well, advocating for better pay and conditions. She, I mean, Mother Jones, Mary Harris, would have been a national figure. Kate Kennedy is, I suppose, more of a local figure, but still very effective. Oh, still very effective. And, uh, you know, you talk about coincidences and local connections. I presume, Miles, you're familiar with the Knights of Labour. Indeed. And the main man in the Knights of Labour at the time was a man called Terence Powderly. 
Terence Powderly was from Brianstown, just outside Drogheda. That surprises people because it's not a very Irish name. No, and there's there's a batch of Powderlies in the Dalik area, and uh, suddenly this man, Terence Powderly, is the main man in the Knights of Labour, and he sees the fantastic benefits of having somebody like Kate Kennedy on board. So what you see is you see this trend emerging that the Irish were the working class at the time. They were very active in trade unionism and they were pushing for change. And they were up against, in certain parts of the USA, the WASPs, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who just despised Catholics. And it wasn't just that they had it in for the Irish, they had it in for the Italians and the Poles. As they saw it, the Catholics were an underclass. So you had the likes of Kate Kennedy, who has now broken through. She has set a precedent and she is an inspiration for all sorts of trade unionists right across the USA to deliver, you know, better working conditions and, where possible, equal pay. Past, as you said, uh, her niece wrote a book about her in the 1930s. Tell us a bit about that. Alice Claire Lynch was her niece. She lived on a farm outside San Luis Obispo County and she wrote a biography of all her aunts and uncle and the farm. She also, this Alice Claire Lynch, her niece, corresponded with my father in the 1940s. So there was a lot of information going back and forth between the two of them. And, uh, of course, it was during the war time, so there was a lot of, the, lot of the letters were censored. Do, do we know, did she ever come back to her? Did, did oh, she, she visit? did, she did. She visited, she came back in the late uh, 1870s. In 1878, 20 years after she began her work in San Francisco School Department, Kate asked for a year's leave of absence and spent this time travelling through the British Isles, visiting France, Italy, Spain, Austria, Germany and Switzerland. She spoke German, Italian, French and Spanish, so wherever she went she was able to talk to the people in their own language and gather information from many sources. Her chief object at this time was to investigate educational and economic systems in these countries and she talked with those interested in the higher education of women and visited many of the leading universities at the time. One thing I might add, and you touched on this earlier on, and if we can return to it, what struck me was when I came across the Kate Kennedy story was that she is, you know, revered in books on female achievement in the USA, including, for example, Notable American Women from 1607 to 1951, which is a biographical dictionary published by Harvard Press in 1971. She gets mentioned at length in a book called They Were San Franciscans, which was published in 1941. There's a book called The History of San Francisco, Volume 3, which was published in 1924. She also gets a prominent mention in a book titled European Immigrant Women in the United States by Judy Barrett and Judith MacDonald, and that was published by Garland Publishing in 1994. And as recently as 2018... She was honoured by a man called Peter Yeo, who is the Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy uh, of the United Nations to mark the 73rd anniversary of the UN Declaration on Human Rights. He cited her as one of the great female achievers and pioneers and a woman who inspired others to go out there and fight for their rights. You mentioned Catholicism and the attitude of the wasps towards Catholicism, but... uh you know, but they, but they, towards the end of her life, in fact, quite early on in her life, she was no Catholic, as you pointed out. Well, once again, 
Apparently, the Kennedy family saw such appalling misery and squalor during the famine, they began to ask themselves what sort of a God would allow this to happen. And I touched on the fact that the Catholic Church apparently were challenged about, you know, where was God when the famine was going on? Why are the Catholic Irish dying in a way that the Protestant Irish are not? And the response was, this was the will of God. And apparently she was furious with this. This didn't win her over whatsoever, which in itself was quite a break with the, if you like, the norm at the time, because anybody who was Catholic was a dedicated Catholic. But she basically went through her life with no religion at all. Just finally, Pat, as as a relative, as a, as a distant relative, is there a great pride about oh, Kate Kennedy and the family? Oh, very, very much so. Like, uh, we don't go out looking for publicity, but I'm, I'm delighted that she's finally getting to be recognised in this country for what she did because she was a, a fighter for women's rights. And not only women's rights, but the poorer people that's around for tax reasons and all that, she was a great agitator for that. And for the ordinary person in the street, that's who she was fighting for. My guests are Pat Kennedy and Ken Murray. Thank you both very much for joining us this evening to talk about the life of Kate Kennedy, a pioneering visionary who's now beginning to get the recognition she deserves. After the break, a rocket engineer's perspective on the moon landing in 1969. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Finally tonight, we're looking back at the moon landing in 1969, which, to put it mildly, was a very complex operation with many distinct challenges. Jesse Kitchens is a rocket engineer who played an important role in that historic mission. Earlier, he spoke to our reporter, Mark McMenamin. It was exhilarating. I had worked on a uh, sort of a mundane program, making gasoline and petrochemicals, and uh, a government had just gotten interested in actually competing with Russia in the space race. Four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little. This is Jess Kitchens. Originally from Arkansas, Jess has lived most of his life in the Bay Area in San Francisco, California. Jess, now retired, was an engineer and an expert in rocket propulsion systems. In 1969, he was approached by NASA to help with the Apollo program, which aimed to land astronauts Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin on the moon. There was a lot of recruiting going on, and I and I got a job with Rocketdyne. I remember telling people, friends of mine, that I had discovered a job that I thought would keep me occupied for the rest of my life. Jess worked for Rocketdyne, a rocket technology specialist company in Canoga Park, California whom NASA approached to help them fix a problem with the Lunar Ascent Module. This was the engine that would lift Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong back off the lunar surface so they could connect with Michael Collins in the command ship as it circled the lunar surface, 
then make their way back to Earth. NASA was having scheduled problems with the lunar ascent engine, which took the astronauts off the moon back up to the spacecraft. The engine wasn't working. It had a combustion instability that risked the whole program. Time was off the essence, and NASA implored Jess and his team at Rocketdyne to do all that they could to repair the fuel injector on the lunar module so that the entire mission would not be put at risk. So NASA came to Rocketdyne and said, can you fix it? And Rocketdyne went on a crash program to repair the injector on the Bell engine. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. As Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin explored the lunar surface, 384,400 kilometers away, back in California, Jess sat by a phone connected to NASA, who would ring him should there be any problem with the lunar ascent engine. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Because this was a critical factor in the early launches, uh, Rocketdyne built all those injectors for those engines. And so whether the flight was in the middle of the night or whether the flight was in the daytime, wherever, I was sitting back in California with all of the logbooks for that engine on the telephone with NASA, sitting there in case there was a problem. We could give advice, you know, in real time. It was the only engine that the astronauts could get off the moon with. Every other engine had a fallback position that they could do a workaround with, with another engine or whatever. The lunar module ascent engine had no backup. Two, one, zero, all engines running. The launch back to connect with Michael Collins in the command shuttle was of course a success, and Jess's phone didn't ring that night. All had dual systems. There were six attitude control engines on the command module, but they had a complete backup system, so they were actually 12 engines, two complete systems. And that was true in one way or another on everything on that Saturn V vehicle that took them into the moon, except the lunar module ascent engine. So it was important. While Jess is extremely proud of his work on the Apollo program, as well as its predecessor, Gemini, he doesn't consider it the most important work that he carried out over his career. I worked on various programs, space programs that the government had. They were not all for NASA. I also worked on a program in which the Intent was to be able to intercept a nuclear bomb that might be launched at us. A far smaller program, a smaller amount of money. But the question I have is, which one of those was most important? If an ICBM were coming toward Ireland, which one would you say? 
Jesse Kitchens, rocket engineer, ending that report from Mark McMenamin on the Apollo 11 moon landing. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark Dwyer on sound and our researcher, Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.